Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. Can a Christian lose their salvation? I want to start off by prefacing it, this whole broadcast with Titus chapter 3 and verse 9 and 10. This is what the Bible says. Avoid foolish disputes and genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law for they're unprofitable and useless. So a lot of people use that scripture and they say, you see, to talk about doctrine, to talk about doctrine is useless. We should never, it's a foolish debate. It's a foolish thing to do. You should not address doctrine. As long as we get along on Jesus, that's all that's needed. Well, that's not what Paul's teaching here. Uh, Paul is certainly not telling people to be mindless believers. He actually says to Timothy, we should study to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed. So Paul's not double-minded, wherein sometimes he's telling people to study. You know, he tells Timothy to give himself to reading exhortation and doctrine. He talks to Timothy and tells and, and has told him in one of his letters, he's telling him that you've carefully followed my doctrine. So Paul obviously was a man of doctrine, and he was a, a, an advocate for Christians not being mindless people who don't know what they believe in. But rather that they should <laughs> they should study to show themselves approved and set aside doctrine in their hearts so that they have an answer for people who ask for the reason of the hope that is in them. He actually tells tells his uh, I forget who he's talking to in that particular scripture, but he one of the scriptures that he writes is that you should sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense for the hope of the gospel. Always have an apologia, a reason for what you believe. You know, it's a weak, a weak doctrined church that is weak in every other area of, 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 of operation in the church. You cannot be weak doctrinally and strong in evangelism and strong in, in manifestations of the Holy Ghost. Powerful manifestations come as a result of strong doctrine. Strong evangelistic endeavors and success in evangelism comes as a result of strong biblical doctrine backing up. Preaching is not just proclaiming anything, it's proclamation of Bible doctrine. And so Paul's not saying you should avoid talking about doctrine. He's saying there's a d difference between someone who's wanting just to argue with you and then someone who sincerely wants to debate doctrine. There's a difference between someone who has this malicious intent behind their, their, their approaching you. They're like abrasive in how they approach you on a, a doctrinal topic and then someone who sincerely wants to talk about it. He says you should identify one from the other and you should, to the one, not entertain them at all. The one that comes in abrasively, that comes in with hands and fists clinched ready to you know they're, they're like coming in with an assault uh they're coming in with a, 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 a an attitude of assaulting you an attitude of 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 um of, uh, you know, calling you all kinds of names. Like the moment someone disagrees. How many of you have had that? Where someone disagrees on a doctrine that you believe in. And the, the first thing they do is you're a false teacher. A false prophet. And you're, you're condemned. They condemn you. Just because you differ on some points. 
And you know, this I posted a video last week and I mentioned how Christians can forfeit their salvation. And I had people write, two or three people write on the YouTube video that, uh, you know, you're a false teacher and we're praying for you. Just because we have differences on, and there's a difference between differing on absolute truths, like the incarnation of Christ, like the justification by faith, like the doctrines of baptisms and judgments. There's a difference between the non-negotiables and the negotiables. There are absolute truths that if someone veers off that truth, they're not to be entertained. They're, they're false teachers. If someone starts to debate the incarnation of Christ, if someone starts to debate the, uh, the, the sinless, perfect life of Christ, if someone debates the fact that Jesus uh, rose from the dead or did not rise from the dead, rather, they start to, 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 to propagate um, lies like Jesus never rose from the dead or he wasn't crucified. It was someone that looked like those are all false doctrines and they're to be condemned and preach, people that preach that will be condemned and damned. There's, there's no doubt about that. But then there are issues that are not salvific. There are issues that matter. All doctrine matters and all doctrine are gonna, all doctrines will influence the way a person lives. So it's important to pay special attention to doctrine and to rightly divide the word of truth. But there are some doctrines that will not uh, keep someone out of heaven. There are doctrines that they might err on, but it's not going to keep them out of heaven. There are people, for example, that believe in a post-tribulation rapture. And then there's some that believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Whether you believe in a pre-tribulation or a post-tribulation rapture, if you have put your faith in Christ and are living a holy life, you've repented of sin and have turned to God in faith and are walking in love, you're going to make heaven, whether you believe in post, pre, or tri, uh, mid, or, 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 or any type of rapture. You're, if you don't believe in a rapture at all, you're still going to make heaven because you've put your faith in Christ. Those, that's a perfect example of a doctrine that isn't salvific. It's not... If one believer believes in one thing, they're damnable. They call it damnable doctrine. What I'm talking about today is not a, a damnable doctrine. However, it can lead people to damnable doctrines based on what you believe. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 10, reject a divisive man. After the first and second warning, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. I'm prefacing this whole broadcast by stating that this broadcast is not designed to bring division or schism in the body of Christ. This broadcast isn't designed to attack people who hold differing point of view as to what I believe in. And I'm going to get into what I believe in. The Bible says we're to reject a divisive man. When someone comes in, like I said before, with their, their fists clenched and they're ready to fight and they, they're ready to die on doctrinal hills that aren't necessary for salvation. The Bible says that those people that sow discord amongst the brethren are warped, sinning, and being self-condemned. The person that rushes in, and just because they disagree, like for example, divine healing. I believe that God wants to heal everyone, and it's by faith that you tap into God's healing power. Other people don't believe that. 
Are they going to hell? No. There are very sincere Christians, good-hearted people that love God with all their heart, soul, and strength that don't believe in divine healing the way I believe in divine healing. Does that mean that they're going to hell? No. Will I ever say that? No. But unfortunately, Paul's addressing that there are divisive people. That unless you believe everything they believe, you're going to hell, you're damned, and you're condemned, and there's nothing you can do about it until you start to switch your belief system to adapt, my, to, adapt to my belief system. Paul's saying that type of person is warped. He's perverted, he's self-condemned, he's still in sin, and you should avoid those people. Romans 16 says, note those who cause divisions and avoid them. Romans chapter 14, listen to this. Romans chapter 14. And verse, starting with verse one. Receive one who's weak in faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat dis or judge him who does eat, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he'll be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day over another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose again that we might, he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul's saying, one person believes one thing. Obviously, we're not talking about absolute truth here, as I've said before. One pe person believes that a Christian can lose their salvation, another believes that he can't. The Bible says, let that man be. Let that, if he talk about it, you can debate on it, you can address it in a loving, kind manner, but at the end of the day, we're not to say that person's not a brother because he doesn't stand by my truth. No. There are hills that I'm going to die on, but this one's certainly not one, but I want to address it regardless because it's important and it's going to, it's going to affect and influence the entire Christian conduct, so it is important. And it's going to influence someone's entire Christian conduct on this earth. So let me get in it straight away. Can a Christian forfeit or lose their salvation? Before I can get into that, I need to go through the two main perspectives on this. And some of you have heard these words before, some, or these names. Some of you have never heard it. But there's two main points of uh, view there is the Calvinistic approach to this, and there is the Armenian, Armenian approach to this. John Calvin, and I think his name was Jacobus Armenian, both of them were extremely bright and brilliant theologians. John Calvin was a French theologian, and uh, they're both during the Reformation era, and they both had their own respective views on the doctrine of soteriology. Soteriology is the study of salvation, of the doctrine of salvation. How a man calls, uh, how God calls man, the doctrine of faith, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, all of that is um, umbrellaed within 
soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, the study of what the Bible says about how man is saved or how God saves man. The Calvinistic approach has five main points, and the Arminianistic approach has five, also five main points. I'm going to go through John Calvin's way of thinking on this first, and then I'm going to go through Joseph's, or Jacobus, I forget, it's Joseph or Jacobus, but regardless, Armenians, uh, the Armenianistic point of view, and the five points in Armenianism. Number one point of Calvinism, so these, this, this point of view generally believes that a Christian can never lose their salvation, I'm going to get to why. Number one point in Calvinism, who by the way, I'm also going to preface the rest of what I'm saying today by stating there are brilliant minds and theologians that believe in Calvinism. Wonderful men of God that I can name that have been great uh, sources of biblical truth and they've been great assets to their generation in things pertaining to Christianity, in, in Christendom. There are people on both sides, Arminianism, and Calvinism, that just because one believes one or the other does not mean one's less intellectual or not. I know Calvinists that are brilliant people, brilliant, brilliant minds that love the Lord with all their heart and sincere about it. And then I know people that are Armenians that are the same. So it has nothing to do with, that's what I was saying before. There's people that like go for the juggler the moment they believe something. Uh, now that you're a Calvinist, you're, you're from Satan himself. You are an angel of darkness disguised in light. You are a minister of Satan. They immediately jump to conclusions. When in reality, there are sincere, wonderful, brilliant, uh, holy ghost people on both ends. So what are the five points of Calvinism? TULIP is the way you can, uh, the acronym that's used, and it starts with T, total depravity. Total depravity. Calvinists believe in the total depravity of man. What is total depravity? It is that man in his fallen state is completely incapable of doing any good acceptable to God. That man in his fallen state is totally deprived of the ability to do anything good. And that includes choosing God. Number two, the U of Tulip is unconditional election. Unconditional election is as a result of man's total depravity. Man is unwilling and unable to come to God for salvation. And so God has to sovereignly choose and select the ones that he has saved and his decision to save them and elect him is unconditional, not based on what a man does, whether good or bad, evil or right, but it's purely based on God's election and grace. That's unconditional election. That no matter what a man has done, good or bad, or what he does, good or bad, until the day he, he goes home or, or he dies, God has, before time began, elected certain people, selected, according to his own will and purpose, certain people for salvation, and other people are left out, and they're doomed for destruction, there's nothing they can do about it, and uh, 
And that is a set thing. It's an established fact. This is what Calvinists, Calvinists believe. I'm not saying this is what I believe. It certainly is not. Number three is the L, limited atonement. Atonement for the sins of God's elect has been made and sacrifice in the sacrifice of Jesus only for the elect. So they believe in a limited atonement. What is limited atonement? That the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of sins, the blood that Jesus shed was specific for the elect and nobody else. So those whom he has unconditionally elected, those are the ones that Jesus shed his blood for, nobody else. That's what Calvinism teaches. So God made provision for the elect alone in sending Jesus. The eye of the tulip is irresistible grace. What is that? The Holy Spirit draws the elect that he's called unconditionally to the finished work of the cross. They cannot reject that draw. It is an inward draw. They cannot refuse the draw. It is an irresistible grace that pulls on them. And in theological circles, they call it efficacious, the efficacious call. Meaning it's a call that only the elect ever feel. A draw that only the elect ever feel. And uh, the rest of the world have no part in that. And they can't partake in that. It's an irresistible grace. You can't put it aside. You can't ignore it. There's no rejection of it. That someone who's been elected and someone who's been atoned for is going to have the Holy Ghost drawn them and it's like a fish that's been on the hook. There's nothing they can do about it. They coming in whether they want it or not. That's the I. And then the P of tulip, which is the final point of Calvinism, five-point Calvinism, which, by the way, I have to say that there are four-point Calvinists, and the, the point that many Calvinists disagree on is limited atonement. So there's some Calvinists that believe the rest of it, but they can't agree on limited atonement. They don't believe that Jesus' blood was shed only for the elect. It was shed for all, but only the elect will respond. The P in tulip is perseverance of the saints. And this is what I'm going to deal with the most, mostly in this broadcast, is those who God has elected, atoned, and called will never fall away. God has sealed them with his spirit, and God will make sure. It has nothing to do. There's no responsibility on their end. God is the one that will make sure they never stumble nor fall, and that they're found faithful to the end, that they endure to the end, that there's nothing that, that a man, once he's been born again, could never, ever turn the other way, can never fall away, can never apostatize, can never move or depart from the faith that the moment they're born again, the Calvinist believes in the perseverance of the saints, they will persevere to the end. And if they don't persevere to the end, it just shows that they were never born again. That's what Calvinists believe. What do Armenians believe? And I identify as an, Ar an Ar Armenian. And it's important to know this. I know this is not going to be a super popular broadcast. We're at 93 people. It's 25 minutes in. Usually by this time, we're at 150 people. I know that people don't care. Most people don't care about 
theological terms and, and their belief system. And that's why their life is a vicious cycle of needing deliverance from sin. Because if you'll understand what I'm talking about today, you're not gonna have, you're not gonna see that you, you, you're not gonna think that you have to struggle with sin the rest of your life. You're not gonna have this vicious battle with sin the rest of your life. You're not gonna give cheap excuses as to why you keep on sinning. And it's just my thorn in my flesh. Oh, this is just my battle. How many of you know we all sin in different ways? When you understand what the Bible says concerning your salvation, then it enables you to break free from the clutch and grip of sin. That's why Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You'll know the truth. So when you don't know that, when a doctrine isn't based and founded in truth, it doesn't produce freedom. Proverbs 14, 25, a true witness delivers souls. A true witness, only when your witness, what you're saying is in accordance with truth, will it deliver souls? Will it bring healing? Will it bring deliverance and restoration? But when you just preach whatever your opinion is, and you're just trying to create excuses as to why things happen in life, it's not going to produce liberty for people that are bound. I don't care if my doctrines offend people. I don't care if scripture offends anybody. I want to see people walk in God's best, and that includes you. And you're not going to walk in God's best if you're, you're just trying to find, you know, I always give this analogy. If I'm in a ditch, I don't want someone to throw me a pillow and my favorite meal and a flat screen TV. I want him to throw me a rope so I can get out of the ditch. There's too much Christianity and Christian preaching that revolves around comforting people in their low place in life, making people feel all right with what they're doing. When the gospel was never meant to be a, a, solely a comforting thing, the gospel first offends and then it comforts, not the other way around. The gospel first offends and then brings comfort. The gospel is an offense first before it brings salvation and comfort. The Bible says they were pricked to the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? And so if you just surround yourself with preachers that just are going to comfort you and scratch those itching ears, you're not going to live. You're, you're in, first of all, in danger. You're treading dangerous waters because you go down that route, you keep that approach with every doctrine. Oh, I don't like the way it's, ah, that doesn't seem very loving or whatever. <laughs> you, start, you start following that road down to, to the end of the road and you're gonna, you will eventually get into damnable doctrine because the Bible says in the last days, one of the problems that's gonna face, that's gonna be, uh, that generation's gonna face is that they're going to give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons wanting their itching ears to be scratched. They're going to be heaping up for themselves teachers according to their own lustful pleasures. What does that mean? I, I don't like the way that guy preaches. He's a little too hard on sin and stuff like that. I'm more of the grace. Because they're putting their finger on a on an area in your life that's causing pressure for you to actually produce change, they try and heap up for themselves teachers. I, I know a guy, literally, I was talking to someone not too long ago. Why do, uh, it, the guy used to come to our church, he doesn't come to our church anymore. He was asked, why don't you come to that church anymore? You know what, they, you know what he said? 
Uh, he preaches too strong on holiness all the time. My, my pastor, that pastor preached too strong on holiness. I'm more of the grace crowd and stuff. Are you kidding me? Too strong on holiness? Let me make this clear to you. And I heard my mentor evangelist, Tiff Shuttlesworth, say this, and I, I, I couldn't agree more. If I err, let me err on the side of holiness. If I'm, in a, if I'm preaching a, a, a wrong teaching, which I, I pray I'll never preach a wrong teaching, but if I ever do, let it be that I'm preaching too strong on holiness, then the opposite. If I err, may I err on the side of holiness. If I'm wrong on something, let it be that I was too strong on that thing. People, oh, they're hyper faith. You know, they preach too strong. Of, how could you preach something called faith that the Bible says pleases God in a hyper manner? How can you preach something that pleases God too much and be too strong on it? I'd rather be too strong on faith. What am I going to do? Preach doubt? I'd rather be preaching too strong on holiness and abstaining from sin and turning from sin and repentance. I'd rather preach too strong on hell then lead a generation wrongly in the wrong direction. And so unfortunately, because people are, 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 are very shallow in their faith, you know, the Bible says that one of the people, one of, the, one of those that don't endure to the end is the ones that are, the seed of the gospel is sown into their life. But the Bible says they have no firm root in themselves. It's shallow soil. And so they endure only for a little while. You want to know why Christians backslide all the time? It's not because they, they have a heart to backslide. They want to keep, they want to stay straight with the Lord. They want to keep to the paths of righteousness. But the Bible says they have no root in themselves. They have shallow doctrine. David said, I have hidden thy word in my heart that I, that I may not sin against him. So when you get the word of God and doctrinal things in your heart from, from God's word, his truth hidden in your heart, it creates in you a resistance against sin, a stamina to keep running on the path of God, to keep your body in check and discipline yourself to live a holy life. But when you have the word, when the word's not in your heart or when you have shallow, a shallow understanding of the word in your heart, the moment tribulation arises, the moment there's any sort of pushback, the moment the sun comes out and there's heat on the word, the moment temptation knocks on their door, they immediately fall away, they wither away. The Bible says the seed that is sown on the good ground is those that hear the word with understanding. So it's not just about hearing the word. There has to be understanding mixed in. You have to understand the word. It's not just about hearing the word and being able to quote the word. You can quote the word till you're dead. Until you understand what you're quoting, you won't produce fruit. But when you understand what you're quoting, the Bible says you'll produce 30, 60, and 100 fold fruit. I always ask myself, why 30, 60, and 100 fold? Why not? When they receive the word, they produce 100 fold. Why not go for the best? Well, I felt the Spirit clearly explain to me why Jesus said 30, 60, and 100. 
It was because some people have a 30-fold level of understanding, some people have a 60-fold level of understanding, and some people have a 100-fold level of understanding. Just like in a test, somebody gets a 30%, somebody gets 60%, and a some, someone else gets 100%. They all wrote the same test, they all read the same material, but some took hold of the material better, and they passed with flying colors. Others got aced the test, and others, others, others didn't do so well. So that's why you see there's Christians that are constantly battling, battling sin, struggling with this. There's others that are getting by. And then there's others that are victorious in life and triumphing all things by Christ Jesus who gives them strength. What's the difference? Their level of understanding. So let's lean in to understand Bible doctrine so that we're not workers who are ashamed, but rather, like Paul said, We've studied to show ourselves approved workmen who need never be ashamed. Let's go on. What's Arminianism? Well, we went through the five points of Calvinism, which is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Let's get into what I believe the five points of Arminianism. Number one, partial depravity. What is partial depravity? Some people hear that and they get turned off. Well, no, 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 no. The Bible says we're all dead in sins. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, agreed. I believe that. We, humanity is deprived because of sin, impoverished by sin, bankrupt because of sin. However, I believe all human beings, though they are born with the nature of sin, and though they've fallen and have been tainted by the poison of sin that has bankrupt them, it is not to the extent that man is no longer able to turn to God or choose God. Calvinists believe total depravity, that man is not even able to, to turn to God. Man's not even able to believe or, or to choose God in the fallen state. I believe that though we are in a fallen state and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, God has given us something called prevenient grace which is a common grace bestowed on all men. Every individual that has ever been born has received prevenient grace, which allows them and gives them the power or the ability to turn to God upon hearing the message of the gospel. Calvinism teaches you have no choice, that you're predestined to heaven or hell, that, it's, that salvation is not a matter of your choice, that salvation is a matter of... Uh, of God's choice and God's election. That because man is totally deprived, we wouldn't even have the ability to choose God and so God had to make that choice for us. Well, here's why I don't believe that. Going back to Genesis chapter four, from the very beginning of the Bible, we can disprove this. Genesis chapter four and verse six. And so the Lord said to Cain, before Cain sinned, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? So God gives Cain the ability to choose to do well. He says, if you do well, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do well, or if you choose not to do well, sin is lying at your door. It's desirous for you, but you should rule it. You should rule over it. Well, why would God... Tell Cain that you can rule over something 
that Cain had no ability to choose to rule over in the first place. It would be kind of cruel to tell somebody you can do something all the while knowing you have no ability to do that thing. God says to Cain, you have the ability to do well. And if you do well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring advantages to you in life. Godliness is going to bring profitability to you. But he also said, but if you don't do well, you have a choice to reject my counsel that I'm giving you today, Cain. And based on your acceptance or rejection of what I tell you to do is how your life's going to unfold. So Genesis 4 shows that you can indeed choose, you can choose God. Now, God was not telling Cain that you can work your way to salvation. What I'm merely pointing out from this scripture here is that God showed Cain that he had a choice in life. He did not have to kill Abel. Just now understand this, because this is where people get messed up. Well, isn't God sovereign? And isn't everything we do in life his sovereign will? No. Just because God made a decree, for example, God created the, he made a decree that he was going to create the heavens and the earth, and he was going to create man. Just because man sinned did not mean, does not mean he decreed that man would sin. It simply means that God decreed to create the heavens and the earth. He put man in the Garden of Eden and he foreknew and foresaw. There's a difference between foreordination and foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is God knows all things. He knows what you're going to do. He knows whether you'll accept him or not in the end. He'll know. He knows everything before, before the foundations of the earth. He's the eternal God. He dwells above time. But that does not mean, just because God knows you're going to do something, does not mean he ordains for that thing to happen. It does not mean he commissions or necessitates for those things to happen in order for him to accomplish his purpose. So there's a difference between the two. And that's where Calvinists get tripped up on, is they can't conceive that God actually left man uh, a level of sovereignty over their own lives. That because we believe God is totally sovereign, we can't conceive that man has a level of control over their life. But that's, I mean, you can read the scripture and look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Let's go to Deuteronomy 30. Make it very evident here. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and death. Uh, sorry, life and good, death and evil. In that I command you to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you possess. But if your heart turns away, so that you do not hear or obey, and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you will surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. Verse 19. I call heaven and earth as a witness today against you. So total depravity in the Calvinistic point of view believes that heaven has already decided earth's destiny. What, who's going to be the elect? Who's destined for salvation? Who's destined for the ultimate heaven that is to come? Who's going to make heaven and who's damned to destruction and hell? That's what they believe. Arminianists believe in partial depravity in that God gives man the choice. And Deuteronomy 30, 19 establishes this because Moses says, I call heaven and earth. I call heaven and earth 
as a witness today against you. That I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, highlight this in your Bibles. Choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Therefore, choose life. The Bible makes it very clear. God has voted for you. The devil has voted against you. Man casts the deciding vote. That's partial depravity. Number two, conditional election. So while Calvinists believe that as a result of man's total depravity, they don't have the ability to choose God, so God God chooses man, and they use such scriptures like Ephesians 1 that says, in love he predestined us to adoption, that we, whether we did good, do good, no matter what we've done or what we'll do, you've been unconditionally elected for salvation. And there's nothing you can do to work against that or for it, just like God said, and they use Romans chapter 9, before Esau or Jacob were even born, I have said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so they, they draw back and they believe that before man was even born, you were pre-programmed with a software for heaven. And there's, there, you can't work against that software. Like God installed a chip in certain people that he has elected before time began and uh, because of that installation of that chip in them, in the back of their minds, they, they've been like stamped before time began. And there's nothing they can do to work against it or for it. They're, they're, uh, they're programmed. Programmed to heaven, others are programmed to hell. And there's nothing you can do about it. Well, here's what I have an issue with. Here's where I have an issue with it. Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Bible said, so we believe in, I believe in conditional election. Calvinists believe in unconditional election, which is your program for hell or your program for heaven. I believe in conditional election in that God chooses, God has chosen all of humanity and nobody is pre-programmed to heaven or hell. God has, in sending his son, has made an announcement. Salvation is for all. And now it's man's response to God's universal call that determines their eternal destination. Listen to this. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow concerning his promises. Some count slowness. But he is long-suffering towards us, not willing (coughs) that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Not willing that how many? Any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the Bible makes it clear. God has no, God did not make hell for mankind. God made hell for the devil and his angels. But it's when, when man, you know, God has elected to save mankind. And those that believe in Christ, Ephesians 1 says, we've been accepted in the beloved. When you believe in Christ, God chose Christ. If you believe in Christ, you're accepted and chosen with Christ. 
Do you understand that thought? Christ is the beloved. Anyone that does not put their faith in Christ is not accepted in heaven. When you put your faith in Christ, you are now accepted in the beloved. And as a result, predestined to adoption by Christ Jesus to himself. So that's why the Bible calls the in Christ, what we call the in Christ statements. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Outside of Christ, when you don't abide in him, you are, the, like the Bible says, under the sway of the wicked one. In Christ, you're accepted in the beloved. You're chosen. You're a royal priesthood. You're a chosen generation. You're God's holy possession. But it's conditional upon your choice. Exodus chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. And not Exodus, sorry. Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18. And verse 23. Let's start with verse 20. No, let's do, let's do 23. Do I have any pleasure, God said, at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? This is God speaking. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die and not that he should turn from his ways and live? So the Bible says very clearly that God does not want the wicked to die in their sin. He wants, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. Number three, point for Arminianism, unlimited atonement. So whereas Calvinists believe in limited atonement, and this ties closely with conditional election, but while Calvinists believe in, unlimited, in limited atonement, in that Jesus' blood was shed for some, but not for all, I believe in unlimited atonement. The gospel is a universal call that he died for all the sins of this world, and it's proven by several scriptures. 1 John chapter 2. And I'm opening my Bible. I can quote these, but I'm opening my Bible. So people don't think I'm just pulling this out of thin air. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. And Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. So the Bible doesn't teach that he's, he's the propitiation, which is a theological term for the, the, um, <coughs> the uh, redeemer or the remover of the sin and burden of that sin for just the elect only. It says for the whole world. Listen to this, John 3.16. We've all quoted it. God so loved who? The whole world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, you should highlight all the whosoever and as many as called on the name of the Lord were saved. You look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. The Bible says Jesus was in the world <coughs> and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But as many as received him. So the Bible doesn't teach a limited atonement. That Jesus died for a select few. The Bible teaches that Jesus died for all. The Bible says this is a trustworthy statement. Deserving of full acceptance. That God desires all men to be saved. Not some men. Not most men. 
God desires all men to be saved. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become children of God. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Listen to what, uh, what Paul writes to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So the Bible says the grace of God that brings salvation has not appeared to some men, to all men. So it's difficult to conceive that God would issue out this universal invitation to which only a few reserved and selected individuals have the ability to respond. Doesn't make any sense. If God issued out an invitation that is universal, it's because his arms are open up wide to accept all. The Bible says, and all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So people, you know, I can see in the comments, people are talking about predestination. How can you reconcile predestination with foreknowledge? It's very simple. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So how do we deal with the predestination uh, scriptures of the Bible. It's very easy. It's actually not that hard to understand. Verse 28, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For whom God foreknew, he also predestined. So it doesn't say he predestined alone. It says he foreknew and then predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And then whom he predestined, he then called. Whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. So how do we reconcile the two? It's very simple. In election, <coughs> sorry, let me move back a bit. Foreknowledge refers to God foreseeing those who would respond positively to his invitation to the, uh, and, his, and his, uh, his gospel invitation. So a foreknowledge, think of it this way, is God looking down, because he's the all-knowing God, he's the one who was and is and is to come, he is the, um, he transcends time, he's the eternal God, he knows the end before he even got started in the beginning. He looked down the scope of time, and he foresaw those who would respond positively to his gospel invitation. Then God chose in Christ those whom he foreknew would accept that invitation. So in election, because the Bible talks about election, the Bible says we are elect according, you know, in Peter's letters, he writes that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So how do we reconcile election, predestination, and foreknowledge? Very simply. In election, God has determined to save those that he foreknew would accept his son. He did not manipulate the people to accept Jesus Christ. He just, he knows the future. He knows the decision you would make. He knows how you would react to the gospel. And so in election, he's determined to save those whom he foreknew would accept his gospel invitation. And then he predestines them by resolving to effectively accomplish this purpose in them so because God saw before time that you would favorably accept his gospel invitation he then makes a plan in motion he predestines you to then uh, 
accomplish that purpose. So they're not at odds with each, with each other. They're not, they're not opposites to each other. You, you don't have to, you know, shut off your brain in some scriptures uh, because you can't reconcile both of the, th no, the, everything can actually form a proper theological position. So the gospel is a universal call. Unlim we believe, I believe in unlimited atonement. And I think I made that clear with the scriptures. You know, the Bible says, we judge thus that Christ died for all. <coughs> I mean, you can't get more clear than that. Christ died for all. Jesus Christ died for all. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world, it doesn't say some parts within the world. It says the world would be saved through him. Number four point, resistible grace. So Calvinists believe in irresistible grace. I believe in resistible grace. That God's call to be saved can be resisted or disregarded. How, why do I believe this? Because 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says the following. 1 Corinthians 15.10. I hope this is helping, helping you today. Clarify some things. For I am least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Should highlight that. His grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than, than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So Paul says that you can actually receive the grace of God in vain. You can receive the grace of God in vain. The Bible says very clearly uh, in, in Luke chapter 7 and verse 30 that the Pharisees rejected the will of God concerning themselves, that they should be baptized. Refusing to be baptized, they rejected the will of God. Well, Luke 7.30 says they rejected God's will. So that shows you God's will was for the Pharisee to be baptized and saved and turn in repentance and faith to God. They rejected that will. Not God made them to... No, they themselves rejected that will. You know, people read John 6.44, and this is where irresistible grace comes from, based on this scripture. John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up at the last day. So they say, well, nobody can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. And that is true, but it has to be read in light of John chapter 12 and verse 32. Because you can't just take one scripture, isolate it, and then build an entire doctrine on it. Scripture interprets scripture. It's a law of interpretation. You have to find out what does the entire Bible say about that thing. Because you start getting off into one scripture doctrine, then you're going to start looking at Judas. Judas went and hung himself. So now we should go out and hang ourselves. Because Judas, the Bible says Judas went and hung himself. He was a disciple of Christ. Do you see the rabbit trail that you can, the, the rabbit hole that you can go down? The, the, the dangerous roads that you can travel on if you start to use that law of interpretation? That wrong law of interpretation, just isolating one scripture and building an entire uh, belief system off of it. So John 12, 32. So we just read, no man can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And that is true. But listen to John 12, 32. John 12, 32. Jesus said this. And if I, the son of man, am lifted up, I will draw 
How many people? All peoples to myself. I'll draw all men to myself. So the Bible says that no man can come unless the Father draws. But Jesus said, who's God going to draw? He's going to draw all men. And the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. Meaning God is ready and willing to receive all men. Because all have fallen short of the glory of God. God is willing and ready to give this gift of eternal life to everyone. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But the reality is just because God draws does not mean man responds positively. John chapter 5 Verse 40, and you know, I read it before in John 1. It says, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but they rejected him. But as many as did receive him, to them gave he power to become children of God. So Jesus came to his own. They heard the same message, but the Bible says they they didn't receive him. It's not that Jesus didn't receive them. He, He opened up his gospel invitation to them. They didn't take it. But as many as did take it and latched on, to them gave you power to become children of God. They were born again. John chapter 5 and verse 40. Listen to this. Jesus said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they, these are they which testify of me. Verse 40. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. The Bible makes it amply clear that Jesus said, If you would come to me, you could have eternal life. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have eternal life. Mark chapter 6 talks about Jesus going to Nazareth. And they, he could do no mighty works there because of their unbelief. He wanted to do what he had done in other cities and villages. He wanted to bring salvation, restoration, healing, and deliverance. But they were offended. They rejected him. They couldn't, they couldn't swallow the pills that he, he was offering the doctrinal truths that he was offering. It was too much. You know, he said, I am the bread of life. He that eats of my flesh. The Bible says they couldn't swallow that pill. So they turned away from him. They said, this guy's a lunatic. And then he turned to his disciples and said, will you walk away from me too? Which shows that they had the opportunity to walk away. But they said, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So God will draw and receive all men. But the reality of it is, Resistible grace teaches that people can resist. People can resist. People can refuse uh, the will of God for themselves. And I think that's very clear uh, throughout the entire, you know, the New Testament teaches it time and time again. I just listed like six or seven scriptures that shows you that man can actually be unwilling to come to God. You know, the Bible says that salvation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is a stumbling block to the Jew, and it's, a, it's foolish to the Greek. God could very well be drawing them, but they, it's foolish to them. Anyways, we'll move on to what I... This, brought, this, this last point is, is where I'm going to spend the most amount of time on. Conditional salvation. So, Calvinists believe in perseverance of the saints, which is after you're saved, it doesn't matter what you do, you're stamped, you're sealed, you're making heaven, regardless of how you live and how you keep, keep your life. But the Bible says, and I teach, conditional salvation. Christians can forfeit their salvation 
if through free moral choice, they choose to reject the spirit's influence upon their lives and by exercising their willful, their, their own will, they engage in premeditated planned sin. Conditional salvation. After you're saved, the Bible teaches that you still have free moral, uh, the, the, the ability to choose Moral choice. You don't lose that after you're saved. It's not like God neuters that part off of you. You still have the same way you had the ability to choose God and get saved by prevenient grace. You have now the responsibility to continuously, day after day, the Bible says we work out our salvation through fear and trembling. Paul said it this way, I discipline my body Lest after I've preached to others, I myself should be cast away or disqualified. So the Bible doesn't say once you're saved, that's it, baby. You're, you're, you're on your way to heaven as long as you believe that Jesus died for your sin. No, the Bible says demons believe and they tremble. Faith without works is dead. There has to be corresponding action to your faith. And here are the scriptures that prove that people can fall away. Can a Christian forfeit their salvation? Can they lose their salvation as if it's like a pair of keys that they just... No, you can't lose your salvation like you just woke up one day and it's not there. But can you willfully walk away from that saving, that, that position of salvation that God had you in? Absolutely. And here's why. I believe that. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4, for it is impossible to those who were once enlightened... So the Bible says light has come. Jesus is the light of the world. They were enlightened. Have tasted the heavenly gift. That's the, the gift of salvation. That is what the heavenly gift is. So it doesn't say they, they don't know what the heavenly gift is. They've never partaken. No, they've tasted of it. And they've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean they saw the Holy Spirit move. They've partaken of the Holy Spirit. They had the Holy Ghost move on them. They were maybe even filled with the Holy Spirit and have tasted of the good word of God and of the powers of the age to come. Verse six, if they fall away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the son of God and put him to an open shame. I looked up what that word in the Greek means. If they fall away, para. Pipto is the Greek word, which literally means to fall away from the true worship of the living God. So Paul's, or not Paul, rather, the writer of Hebrews, whoever wrote Hebrews, is not talking to somebody who was just in the community of believers. He was just a part of the church, but he never really was regenerate. He was never born again. He's talking to people who've tasted of the heavenly gift, partook of the Holy Ghost, tasted of the good word of God, have been enlightened, and they have fallen away from the true worship of the living God. And when I'm talking about falling away, I'm not talking about you stumbled one time. There's a difference between somebody who's doing work on his house. He's hammering a nail. He accidentally hits his finger and he says a few profane things he shouldn't have said. And then somebody who gets, goes to church, confesses Christ as Lord and Savior, has months and years even, where he lives on fire for God. And then all of a sudden, because of um, a reunion with an old college friend, starts to go into bars and then trips up because of a negative influence. And then they're 
They're in strip clubs now. And then all of a sudden, he's pissed drunk with a woman that he doesn't even know. It's not his wife. And he wakes up the next morning with puke all over him, a, another woman in his bed, and is totally backslidden. There's a difference between the two. One was premeditated, and he, you know, backsliding's not a, a, a sudden, it's not a blowout. Backsliding is a slow and steady leak. It's a series of events. That's why when I teach that people can forfeit their salvation, I don't mean it's like from one day to the other. It's a progressive thing. It's not, that's why people think like when you preach on, on conditional salvation, you're, you're putting in people this, this uh, false uh, doctrine that's getting them to not have security, that they're saved, and they're constantly doubting their salvation, and they wonder if they're saved today because they, you know, they screwed up the other day, and so they don't know if God loves them anymore. That's a very <coughs> immature, uh, obviously it's a very immature person, that believes that because they're not been taught in biblical truths. We don't teach that there's zero security in salvation. I just don't believe there's eternal security in that you can just go on and live however you want to live, but God, God's already elected you. He selected you. He's unconditionally selected you. And so the actions of your life play no part in your final destination. I don't believe that. I don't teach that. The Bible says these things have been written that you may know you have eternal life. The Bible says don't be deceived. He who practices righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So the Bible gives a reassurance to those that are genuinely living for the Lord. They have scriptures they can stand on. You know in your heart when you're striving to please God, you know in your heart. I mean, there's people who who don't have that anymore. They once did. They, they had a genuine, sincere desire to please the Lord. But now, they've, they've come to a point. They've hardened their heart through sin. You know, the Bible says, actually, let me read it. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3.12, Beware, brethren. Brethren. He's not talking to the world. He's talking about believers in Christ. But be, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So how can you depart from something you've never been to? How can you depart from the living God if you were never in the living God? But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So this slow and steady leak of backsliding is this constant entertaining of sin where you don't do what Jesus told us to do, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it far from you, and in so doing, you've hardened your heart to God, and there's now an evil heart of unbelief, and the Bible says, you're in a state where you have fallen away. Now, Hebrews 6, it says it's impossible to renew that man to repentance. That particular scripture is talking about people who refuse to turn back from their ways, and have fully apostatized in that they not only fell away, they have now made it their life aim to disprove the gospel. They have now made it their life's aim to ridicule the move of the Holy Spirit. There's a difference between someone who's sincerely backslidden and needs help, they've wandered from the truth, and they need a, uh, someone in a spirit of gentleness to restore them, and then somebody 
who is deliberately going on sinning, has flipped the bird to God, and has no intention of ever turning back. There's a massive difference between the two. Hebrews chapter 10, let me read this scripture. Hebrews 10 and verse 26. If we sin willfully, there's that deliberate, willful, premeditated attitude towards sin. It's not just I accidentally screwed up today. It is a premeditated thing. You, you have planned a life of sin. You're living with your girlfriend and you're sleeping with her. You've planned a life of sin. You constantly are going to the casino and gambling that money. You're, you're, you have premeditated it. You've planned it out. You're willful about it. You're intentional about your sin. The Bible says, if we sin like that, after we have come to the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour its adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law, and I have to remind you, Moses' law was given to who? The children of Israel, who had covenant with God. But it didn't matter if they were in covenant, if they rejected the holy requirements of the law, they were stoned to death without mercy. So salvation's a covenant. And you can say, I believe, I believe. And you can do the, the Nicene Creed. Uh, you, can do, you can recite the, the, the Apostles' Creed all you want. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Ghost and the Virgin Boy. You can do all that. But if you reject the requirements of holiness... If they did it under Moses' law, this is the law of lesser to better. So he's, the writer of Hebrews is saying, if under a lesser covenant, they were stoned without mercy because they rejected the requirements of being in covenant with God, how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Highlight that. A common thing. And insulted the spirit of grace, for it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The writer of Hebrews here is not talking about a worldly person who's turned away from God, who heard the gospel truth, but they, you know, it's not really for me. It says here, how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, count, listen to this, this is important, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing. This is addressing somebody who has been sanctified by the blood of Jesus before, who was saved, who was redeemed. But it says now he's going to be cut off because he's deliberately going on, living a lifestyle of sin despite the warnings. I, I, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is why I believe that the once saved, always saved position is, is heresy. It's a false teaching. I'm not saying, as I've said before, that those that teach it are going to hell, they're damnable and all that. No, there's very good, good Christians that believe that. There's Christians that, the, that, that, that are, are wise, intellectual, and sincerely God-loving people and are evangelistic in their lifestyle and all that. There are. I'm not saying if you teach that or if you believe that you're going to hell. However, I believe, the reason why I did this broadcast, I believe that the preaching of such a doctrine does inspire, and I'm going to get through the dangers of that doctrine. 
It does inspire a lax attitude towards sin in the immature believer. An immature believer hears that and they might be inspired or motivated to fall into temptation knowing that they're all right. They're eternally secure. doesn't matter what I do. God's got my back. He's, I, I've got his approval. And so it, it, might, it, it, it might actually give them an ease towards sin. And I've always said this, and I got it from my mentor evangelist, Tiff Shuttlesworth. He says, any doctrine that makes you comfortable to live in sin is a doctrine birthed in hell. Any doctrine that would get you any bit more comfortable with the idea of sin is a demonically inspired doctrine. So that's why I'm taking time to preach against this teaching today is because towards most, I'm not saying, like I said before, there are strong believers that believe this and they do well. But because of the preaching of this type of doctrine towards the immature and people who might not have the same foundation as others, it does spark up and I've seen it. I'm, I'm telling you from experience, I've seen it. Where people that believe this, this type of doctrine have this lackadaisical attitude, indifferent towards sin. They drink. They watch things on Netflix. And then they just soothe their soul and their conscience by saying, I'm eternally secure. And it's wrong. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9. Be diligent to come to me quickly. For Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. Well, let's turn to Philemon, verse 24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, and Demas. Luke, my fellow laborers. The Bible lists in Philemon that Demas was a fellow laborer of Paul in the gospel. So you can't tell me he wasn't saved. You can't tell me he wasn't regenerate. You can't tell me he wasn't sincere. He gave his life. To travel with Paul, he was mentioned in the book of Philemon as a fellow laborer. And in other books, I think in Colossians, Colossians 4.14, he's mentioned by name. So this guy wasn't a nobody. He was like a pillar. And the Bible says, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 10, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. And we know in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, if any man has the love of the world in him, the love of the Father is not in him. And if the love of the Father is not in him, then he ain't saved. So that man forsook, forfeited his salvation and went back into worldly living. And that's made clear by those scriptures. So don't tell me that a sincere believer can't, through a series of events, fall away. 2 Timothy 4 says in, this, in the last days, the Spirit expressly says that some will depart from the faith. Apostis, the Bible says it's uh, apos, apostesis pistis, which is the departure of the faith. Well, let me ask you something. I've never been to Texas. How can I ever tell someone I just departed from Texas if I've never been to Texas? How could you depart from somewhere you've never first been? So how is Paul by the Spirit saying that in the last days some will depart from the living faith? Pistis is not this dead generic faith. People that had a mental ascent and believed, you know, they believed in God, but they never were born again. No, a living faith. They had the same faith that was in Paul in them. 
The Bible says they're going to depart from it. Well, how can you depart from it unless you, unless you first had it? Doesn't make sense. So here are the dangers of, of Calvinism, of the whole, we're elect before time began based on his selection, nothing we can do for it or against it, and we're going to endure to the end no matter how our life lines up. Number one danger is that it gives you a lax attitude towards sin. It eliminates the consequence of disobedience because it tells people that believe that uh, God would never send them to hell. God would never, no matter how they live their life, which flies in the face of scripture because let me read these. For uh, Romans 8, because everyone loves to quote this scripture in debating this doctrine. Romans 8, and uh, let's do verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Pause there. Did I at any moment mention sin in that scripture passage? Did, does Paul at any moment bring up sin? No. He says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, depth, anything created can separate you from the love of God. And I agree with Paul on that 100%. It's scriptural. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You can't ever say, God doesn't love me. Because there's nothing you've done in your past that would eliminate you from receiving from this so great a salvation that Jesus has provided for us in his death, burial, and resurrection at the cross. There's nothing. There's no demon that can stand in the way of someone getting saved. There's no created thing that could prevent you from accessing this universal blessing of salvation. However, the Bible doesn't say, doesn't mention sin in this passage. Because sin will separate you from the love of, not from the love of God, but will separate you from God. So it's not that God doesn't love you anymore because that person backslid and he's fallen away. No, his, the prodigal son is a perfect example. He's there with arms wide open. Nothing can separate you from his love. But just because God loves someone doesn't mean his justice won't allow him or, or justice will allow him to ignore or overlook his sin and allow him free entry into heaven. God's love does not ignore God's justice. God loves all. The Bible says he so loved the whole world. But just because he loves all does not mean that he does that that he looks away from people's sins or he just, you know, I'll I'll, I'll just pretend I didn't see that, all right, Charles? God's love and God's justice work together and both his love and his justice were satisfied at the cross his love was there because Jesus his love compelled him to hang on that tree when he could have called 12 legions of angels to come and deliver him and his justice was satisfied his demands for justice were satisfied on that cross because the wrath of God was poured on Jesus so it's actually an insult to the spirit of grace and the cross by telling people that they can deliberately continue a lifestyle of sin because nothing can separate us from the love of God. And if nothing can separate us from the love of God, then nothing can separate you from him and from heaven. It's wrong because Paul never says sin. 
It says there's angels, principalities, there's nothing that can separate you from God's love. But love will cut you off and separate you from God. Uh, Sorry, sin will cut you out and separate you from God. Sin separates from God. Sin brings spiritual death. There's physical death, which is the separation of your eternal soul from your body. And then there's spiritual death, which is the separation from your soul and God. Separation between your spirit and God. An eternal separation. And to tell people that sin will not lead to spiritual death is wrong. Sin will absolutely lead to spiritual death. And listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. This is Paul speaking to Christians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So don't be deceived. I mean, he can't get more clear than that. Don't be deceived. Why would he warn them to not be deceived unless there was a prop, there was a chance or temptation or he foresaw that a future doctrine would arrive that would get people to be deceived. He says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So he doesn't say, and such are some of you, but praise God, you're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Doesn't say that. It says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were cleansed. You were sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the spirit of our God. Sanctified doesn't just mean in position. Meaning like I'm I'm set apart for God and his work. It's also a process in that God is changing and transforming you, making you more and more into the likeness of his son, conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. So the Bible says you were that, but you've been conformed into the image of Christ. You're no longer idolaters, no longer homosexuals. You're no longer uh, adulterers or fornicators or drunkards. You're no longer uh, uh, covetous or revelry addicted people. You've been changed. There's been a change on the inside of you. Such were some of you. You're no longer like that. Galatians 5. I'm going to read another scripture. Because I want to make this very clear. Galatians chapter 5. 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. He's talking to Christians, by the way. Which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I have told you beforehand, just as I've told you in times past, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who practice, who go on deliberately living a lifestyle of sin. And I'll throw in one more scripture just to nail this thing in. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Once again, he's saying, don't be deceived by doctrines that tell you that um, once saved, always saved. Nothing you can do after that. You're in the boat. You made it. You got your passport. And then, you know, there's people that say, well, you know, if, 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 if they fell away, it's because they were never truly saved. Was Demis not truly saved? 
Because it says Demas was truly saved. He was a laborer with Christ. He worked in the gospel. And he forsook Paul having loved this present world. So you can't tell me that they were never saved in the first place. People use Judas. Judas was never saved in the first place. He was never... Well, how is that possible if the Bible says in Acts 1 that he fell by transgression? What are you falling from? He fell by transgression. So he's obviously falling from someone. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness, who set his mind on living a righteous life, is righteous just as God is, as Jesus is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. He who practices righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. So, actually, there's one more scripture I have to talk about. Because the whole, the whole uh, well, no, they were never really saved in the first place. I can hear people on the other side of this broadcast thinking of that. So I want to I clarify this. Romans chapter 11. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them. He's talking about being grafted into Christ, saved. And with them, you became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, partaker of Christ. You tasted of the, the fruit of the born again spirit. Do not boast against the branches. If you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. You stand by faith. Don't be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. So why is Paul talking like that? If there wasn't a uh, possibility that they can be broken off the vine. If it wasn't a, an actual danger. I'm not saying you have to live your life worried that God cut you off. As I've mentioned before, time and time again. It is an ongoing, deliberate, willful, premeditated lifestyle of sin in which you have intentions to sin and keep sinning and living this practical life of sin. It's not I screwed up yesterday or the week before. It is I am intentional on setting up my life in a way that is conducive for sin. I am taking no heed to the warnings of Scripture that's who the Bible is talking about. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God and those, on those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, oh, Paul wouldn't say you can continue in his goodness unless there was a possibility that you can, can actually not continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you will be cut off. So it says if you don't continue in his goodness, if you don't abide in him, you will be cut off. That tells you, you can, a Christian can be cut off the vine. Jesus said, every branch in me, doesn't say dead branches on the side of the road, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he cuts off and he bundles it up and casts it in the fire. Can't get more clear than that. Cannot get more clear than that. If you abide in me, I will abide in you, and you will bring forth much fruit. Psalm 91, he that dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. So what do I believe? Because people ask, well, well, then what's your version of sanctification? Because perseverance of the saints, because there's scriptures that say in Jude verse 27, God is able to keep you from stumbling and to prevent, to prevent you from falling and keep you holy and, and perfect before his throne. The Bible says, 
in other portions of scriptures that God is able to keep you faithful to the end. Knowing this, that he that began a work in you, he's able to complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the God of peace sanctify you entirely and may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved completely until the day of Jesus Christ. So there's these scriptures that talk about God being able to keep you and preserve you. The Bible says you were sealed by the Holy Ghost for the day of redemption. I agree with all those things. I believe for those things. But I don't believe sanctification is a one-sided thing. I believe that sanctification requires man's cooperation in faith. If I abide in him, he'll produce sanctification in me. If I disconnect from him, I disconnect from the blessing of sanctification. I'm trying to teach and be as clear as I can in this broadcast today. It's not your regular preaching broadcast, but it's necessary. If I stay in him, his power will continue to transmit in me and I will not be conformed to the patterns of this world. I will be transformed into his image. If I disconnect from him, will, because I have freedom of choice, if I decide to go out and do my own thing, there's a way that seems right unto man, its end will be death. But it's in the path of the Lord. In the path of the Lord that sanctification is, is uh, realized. So I believe as I stay in him, and even my ability to stay in him is his grace. That's why I constantly thank God for his grace to stay in him. And I pray for grace to stay in him. Because you know grace can be multiplied in your life. You can have your, the grace of God multiply in your life. Second Peter 1 says grace and peace be multiplied unto you. So I pray for multiplied grace to keep and abide in him. You know, Matthew 25 talks about the 10 virgins. Those 10 virgins are not symbolic of, uh, of five that were in the church and five that were in the world. The 10 virgins were all waiting for the bridegroom at the, at the, at the first. They all had lamps that were burning with fire. They were all dressed in white, ready to meet the Lord at his coming. But the Bible says, as the master delayed the five foolish had no fire in their lampstand. It's a representation that there will be many that start off well. And the Bible doesn't discredit the fact that they are starting off well. Many that are genuinely born again. But for one reason or another, take their foot off the pedal that leads slowly and steady towards a... a, a a life opposite to the scriptures, and they lose that first love. I mean, if people could not fall away from, this, from salvation and forfeit salvation, how is it that Jesus, Revelation uh, 2 through 3, Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is constantly warning the churches to beware and watch and repent or else I'm coming and I'll remove the lampstand from you which is what Matthew 25 is. They're holding the lamps in their hands. Five of them lost the, the fire. Jesus said, if you don't repent and, 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 and quit doing what you're doing, the lampstand will be removed from you. Revelation 3.15 says, if you don't repent, your name will be blotted from the Lamb's book of life. Well, if it was not possible for ha to have that happen, why would Jesus say it? There's too much, the weight of scholarship 
is, and, and forget scholarship, the weight of scriptures is too heavy on one side of this argument, of this debate. That it's impossible. There's too many. I'd have to shut my eyes and my mind off certain scriptures to buy in to the once saved, always saved doctrine. I'm not saying there's scriptures that when you read them, it kind of looks like it. But when you, I, when, you, when you interpret it through the lens of the entirety of scripture, it's, there's too much weight of evidence that talks about conditional salvation for me to buy the once saved, always saved argument. So why are there, what are the dangers of, of Calvinism and once saved, always saved? Number one, a lax attitude towards sin. Number two, a lack of evangelistic fervor. Well, if they're going to get saved, whether what we do or not, they're already elect and called according to the foreknowledge of God and all that. What, what should, why should I even get up and do crusades? Why should I even preach? Why should I even win the loss? Why should I even open up my mouth? If God wants them to get saved, they'll get saved. I'll just keep them in prayer. What motivation or inspiration is there in evangelism? Three danger of Calvinism is the clear violation of scriptural teachings, which I've talked about. And then four is it removes man's personal responsibility and accountability. Paul said, I keep a firm watch over my life as to how I do things, what I say, what I watch, lest after I've preached to others, I myself should be a castaway should be disqualified. Paul himself said, I'm not exempt from being disqualified. Well, that personal responsibility doesn't come on people who think that they can never be disqualified. That type of mindset does not come on a person who believes that no matter what they do, how they live, they'll never, they'll never be disqualified or they'll never be cut out of the race. I'm going to finish this broadcast by... in an encouraging way. If you're watching today and you you thought you believed in the one saved always saved stuff and you thought that no matter what you did how you lived, you know, you 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 had the stamp of God's approval on you and that was it. But today you see from scriptures that's just not so and now you're worried because you don't know whether you're saved or not. Let me tell you something. The Bible makes it very clear that you can know, that you know that your name is written in heaven and that your sins are forgiven and your account is settled with God. And I talked about it before. It requ- the sanct- So like people think, well then how, I- I'm scared I'm going to fall away. I'm scared I'm going to backslide. You don't have to be scared you're going to backslide. If you'll abide in him and connect with him, if you'll stick with his program, Read your Bible every day. Pray every day. Connect to a strong local church that preaches Bible doctrine. If you do these things, you know, let me read this. This scripture just came into my spirit. It's articulating everything I'm having a hard time articulating right now. 2 Peter chapter. Actually, it's. Yeah, 2 Peter chapter. 1 and verse 5. But also for this very reason, give all diligence, add to your faith, virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, 
So it doesn't say that God's going to persevere for you. God will help you and give you grace to do it. But it says you have to persevere. To persevere in godliness, to godliness, brotherly love, and brother, uh, brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will, ne- you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brethren... Be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So there's things that you can do to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. You can live a life where you never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Savior Jesus Christ. So the Bible says, if you'll add, continue to add to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge, if you'll continue to press into the things of God, And like Paul said, I'm not, because people are like, well, I'm not perfect. How am I supposed to know I'm making heaven? Paul said, not that I have obtained perfection yet, but I'm doing one thing. I forget those things which are behind. I press towards the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I, I count everything as rubbish. And I move towards, I'm moving. I, I do this one thing. I focus all my attention on one thing. And that is to live for the Lord. And do, I have this as my ambition, he writes to the Corinthians, to live a life that is well-pleasing to the Lord. So if you have that as your heart's motivation and inspiration, and you're sticking to scripture and praying and connected to a good Bible church, you, you have set yourself up. You have positioned yourself in a perfect place where God will work sanctification in you. God will work his power and his purpose in you. It will be God at work in you and through you to do and accomplish his good purpose. I'll read one more scripture. And I make no apology for reading this much scripture. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. See, that's where Calvinism is appealing. I was talking to my wife before. The very reason this generation loves, they never say I'm a Calvinist. Most people don't know the theological terms, but they'll say things like, you know, I'm securing him. No, doesn't matter how you sin. We all sin differently. You know, we're securing him. They'll say things that have that, that theological position in mind. And I believe that it's appealing to this generation because it removes people's responsibility to do. I'm not saying you're working for your salvation. You are saved and now you're working out your salvation in fear and trembling. There's an inward work that's producing an outward manifestation of grace and power. So it's appealing to a generation that doesn't want to change. You know what the Bible says? Because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. When there's a lack of change in a person, it's a proof that they don't genuinely fear God. The Bible says when you're saved, you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then it tells you how to work it out. It's not by might, not by strength. It is God who works in you to do it, to will and to do his good pleasure. So you just have to set yourself And position yourself in a way where God can work in you to do and to will his good pleasure. I hope this was clear to you. And I want to pray for anyone that's watching right now. I just talked about salvation for an hour and 40 minutes. If you're watching right now and you're not sure. And I mean you know that you know that you know. That your account is settled in heaven. If you have uncertainty in your heart whether you're right with God or not. 
Whether your sins have been washed away by the blood or not, whether your name's written in the Lamb's book of life or not, you need to make today the day that you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Not just Savior. Savior and Lord. What's the difference? Savior is one who saves uh, and delivers and heals and sets free. Lord is now uh, carries the connotation that you have to serve and give yourself over to. I'm not, I don't just call Jesus my Savior. He's my Lord. I serve him. I'm at his beck and call. What he asks me to do, I do. He's my commanding chief officer. If you're here today, and maybe you've been engaged in a life of sin. Maybe you've been deceived into thinking that, you know, I'm saved no matter what I do. I've been sealed for that day of redemption. I know I've been living a life of sin. The Bible says, he that practices sin should not be deceived. He's of the evil one. Turn from sin today. Repent from sin. And turn to God. Make today the day where you can put your head to the pillow at night and know that your sins are blotted out. And let times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. Don't gamble your salvation. Get right with God and put sin away. Cut sin out of your life before sin cuts you out of the land of the living. If you've never done that before and you'd like to do that today, you need to do that today. Pray this prayer with me. Say, Father, in Jesus' name, I give my life to you. I confess Jesus is my Lord. I believe you raised him from the dead. Today, forgive me of all my sin. Where I was weak, empower me by your spirit to live holy. Old things pass away. From today, all things are new. I will live for you. And I'll never be the same again. In Jesus' name, amen. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.